I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Nicole Lacroix, and we're talking all about overtures, which are actually harder to define than you might have thought. With musical examples, we explore its origins in opera and follow it through its development to the modern concert overture. All right, Nicole, depending on how you answer this question, we get to go home early, okay? What is an overture? Can you define an overture? (laughs) No, I can't define an (laughs) overture. (laughs) It's it's way too difficult. Um, Because that's the thing. You wouldn't call a violin concerto a symphony, right? You wouldn't call a string quartet a piano sonata. Those things are defined by the music and the instruments they contain. And with an overture, it's not really about the music or even the instruments. It's about where it's even played, where it takes place within a program of something like an opera or a ballet, right? Yeah, it opens the program. It it uh, announces the important people. It uh, brings you, it makes you stop talking so you can pay attention to what's coming next. It gives you a feeling of the entertainment that you're going to enjoy. It creates excitement, all those things. And you have to do that at the start. You can't do it afterwards or else it's all it's all a waste. <laughs> exactly. You have to do it right at the opening. That's what it means. Ouverture in French means opening. I love overtures because it's kind of like bite-sized music. You can get the idea of a whole opera, perhaps, or a ballet, all within just 10 minutes or less. And you you said earlier that you were on air this morning, and you played how many overtures? Six in four hours. I played some romantic ones, some opera ones, and even one written for children that was published just last month. So, of course, overtures are very popular. And it goes back... Hundreds of years, if we go back to one of the early operas in 1607 by uh, Claudio Monteverdi, the opera L'Orfeo, it starts with what he calls a toccata. And at this time, the word overture wasn't always used. Sometimes it would be sinfonia. There were words that were kind of interchangeable. And the opening to this opera has really nothing to do with the actual opera itself. In fact, it sounds like it's meant to introduce perhaps someone walking into the audience. Sounds very noble, sounds very regal. That's how I think music should be played for me when I enter a room. (laughs) Hail to the chief. Yes. And that would definitely get people to stop talking. That would perhaps, and at this time, concerts, they're not for the public. You don't just go to see the National Symphony Orchestra or an opera at the Kennedy Center. This is for people who are well-to-do, people who are royalty, isn't it? Just imagine, I think this was at the court of Mantua. And so all the nobles are coming in and the duke himself. So he has to be announced with, again, hail to the chief kind of music. It's dramatic. And all the courtiers have to be really, really quiet and do their their bows and so forth. And so that is in 1607. If you go forward for a couple of uh, decades, in fact, we'll try to do 100 years in like 30 seconds. In the 1640s, the French came along and said, okay, an overture is this. It has 
in the opening a dotted rhythm, something like da, ta, 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 ta. And then there is a fugue, a very important melody that gets passed around、um, an ensemble in a very kind of particular fashion. And that started with a composer, Jean Baptiste Lully. So, just to get an idea of how kind of constrictive this is, this was what was considered to be required for the opening for an overture in the French. So, Lully is being inventive there with a the rhythm, but staying in the confines. But that's very constrictive, isn't it? You just have this one rhythm that you can work with to start your whole, your whole overture, your whole opera. And then you can hear the transition to a fugue. And again, this is still, it's interesting, but it's very, very constrained. So that's all from an opera by Jean Baptiste Lully Roland. Fast forward a couple of decades in the 1680s, the Italians come along and they say, no, that's, we, don't, we don't want that. We want an overture that has three sections fast, slow, and fast. And with that kind of idea, there's a lot more opportunity for inventiveness and things to do in the music. In fact, it's kind of an early part of the development of what we would then know of the symphony three movements, fast, slow, and fast. But I'm very glad, Nicole, and I'm sure you are too, that in the end, we left the French version of having these constrained rhythms and ideas in the overture. There's a lot of similarity between what we heard with Monteverdi's Orfeo, that toccata opening, and The Lully Overture. It's the idea of an important person,、uh, Louis XIV in this case, entering the room and then the festivities can begin once he has seated himself and, and then can watch over his courtiers、uh, doing the entertainment. It started with ballet in France because they were very, very Attached to ballet, and in the ballets were various forms of entertainment and singing and, and theater. And Lully developed the ballet overture, and then that grew into the opera overture. And Lully was a very, very powerful man in France. In fact, he was the head of all music under Louis XIV. Louis XIV used music and the arts as a form of propaganda to show that France was supreme. Uh, throughout Europe.、And、that's so interesting that such, I mean, these political ideas and power distills all the way down into the rhythm you can use in the opening of your, of your overture. If you have an opera that's sad or a ballet that's sad or dramatic, you can't start morose because the king is not going to want to walk into that music. <laughs> no. And the king is a fantastic dancer, he's got a big career as a dancer. Going forward, so this is kind of what happens for about a hundred or so years. And then Christoph Willibald Gluck, this composer, came around in 1769 with his opera Alceste, said, We need to reform opera. We need to make this a more cohesive, beautiful, artistic work. A big rule was that an overture had to be linked by theme or mood to the ensuing action. Up to this point, it's about, as you said, Music that reflected the political power and the king or the royalty or whatever. Here, Gluck is saying we need to make it really part of the opera as a whole, a big cohesive work. And this is where we get to a lot of opera overtures that have these themes that we love. In fact, I think some of these opera overtures really overshadow 
the entire opera itself, especially to the general classical music listening public? Think of uh, Beethoven's Leonora Overture, Leonora Number 3, where it's a spoiler. He he tells the whole story in a few minutes, so uh, why listen to the opera? Right. And we have a couple of examples here of overtures that are sure to be familiar, and we can kind of show you how they link to the action that happens later on. One of the most popular operas, Georges Bizet's opera Carmen in 1875. I think we're all pretty familiar with this opening. Now, how many commercials and <laughs> movies and things has that appeared? And I think a lot of people don't even know that that is from an opera by Bizet. Is that the entry of the bullfighters? That is. That is the entrance of the bullfighters that we hear later on sung by the chorus. And it really it brings to life what happens even much later in the opera. And there is a very well-known tune that comes shortly after this in, in, the, in the overture. We'll go back to that, uh, this little bit here. What I love is that if I'm watching this opera and I hear this overture and I don't know anything about it, I know this is some kind of regal some kind of super confident theme of a person that there's this kind of march where it's moving forward and it just sounds confident. It sounds cocky. You have to move to it too. Yes. And later on, as we hear in the, that is the Toreador song and the Toreador is telling the audience, describing all the things that are happening or what makes up the uh, bullfighting in the ring. And then that awesome song is brought into life in the opera. Carmen doesn't have a very good time in this opera, though, in the end, does she? Well, I think in the Toreador song when he's saying that he's dreaming of love and that a dark eye is gazing at him and that love is awaiting him. And love in with Carmen always has a dark hue to it. And he is able to put this in the music, Bizet, in the overture, that this um, kind of this dark sound suddenly appear in the overture. It doesn't totally spoil it like some other composers, but you just know something doesn't end quite well here. There is another opera overture that's very popular, especially on the radio, that is Wagner's Tannhäuser from 1845. Was this one of the ones you played this morning? No, it wasn't, but I did play a Wagner. I, I played Meistersinger. Oh, okay. That one is also starts very regal and just like the opera. But with Tannhäuser, there is this section that, again, when you're listening to it, 
you kind of get an idea, even if you have no idea what's about to happen, you get an idea of the tone and just kind of an overall idea of what's going to happen in the opera. What does that sound like for you? Somebody's walking. Yes. Bunch of people walking. A lot of people walking. You have that, the strings in the background, um, moving you forward. And then you have this line that is like five times longer over top. It sounds regal. It sounds important. It kind of sounds religious in a way too, doesn't it? Yes. That's why it's called the Pilgrim's Chorus. And it is, and later on we'll hear, actually we can listen to it right now, what happens where the pilgrims are singing this from a distance and then they come closer and closer and they're walking through the stage where um, Elizabeth is wondering, is Tannhäuser among these pilgrims returning from Rome? Spoiler alert, he isn't. But we get this fantastic moment that starts in the overture and comes to fruition here. I can still hear in that, though, not just the, the pilgrim's chorus and the marching, but the way the strings are playing that line underneath. It sounds a little frantic in a way. Elizabeth, she's, she's searching. She's trying to maybe, you know, jump up to get a better view, get in a, on a taller place, and she's frantically looking for Tannhäuser. That brings us to another very, very popular opera, operetta, if you will, Bernstein's Candide. This one is not performed as an operetta all that often, but the opera overture, I think, is familiar to so many people. You can already get an idea that it's going to be frantic, kind of hectic, a lot of things happening at once. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. That is the overlying theme. It is going to be fun. This one, uh, Bernstein's Candide, I think this overture is one of the clearest in terms of including themes uh, from the larger work. They're very well separated and sometimes they're even, um, they sound like they're in the same key. So after that opening, there's kind of um, some battle music that represents the, the battle, of course. But this beautiful theme, we'll play it now. You may not even be familiar with the song that this um, is representing in the opera. But just think about what is happening here in the, in the music and the emotions.
This is a very positive feeling, dare I say, happy. Happy. It's so tender, right? There's like this affection and you can hear it's like a cup spilling over. There's so much affection and it works perfectly because this comes from Oh Happy We. It's a duet between Kunigun and Candide. They're about to marry and they're just thinking of all the things that are going to be great. Soon, when we feel we can afford it, we'll build a modest little farm. We'll buy a yacht and live aboard it. Cows and chickens, social girls, peas and cabbage. Here's something interesting about that, though, is that they might be very happy, but they're not happy about the same thing. Their dreams are entirely opposite. Oh, yeah. And that's reflected in the music, too. There's a little bit of a, of a tension you're not going to park your yacht on your farm next to the peas, right? Next to the jewelry factory or something? No. But it works perfectly. And then in the overture, we'll go back to that now, there is one of the other themes that is so clearly defined. And with this one, you can especially hear how her desires of luxury are very, very different. She turns up in Paris and she sings the song Glitter and Be Gay on the same theme. She has, she has the pearls, she has the jewels, and she's admiring herself. And it just works perfectly with the music. And Bernstein's Candide, I've played it so many times. It's, a, it's an extremely popular overture that I think has overshadowed the larger work in general. And I think it brings down the house every time. Every that's time. An, that's another purpose of the overture, even if it's not before a specific piece of music like an operetta or an opera or ballet or whatever. It is to warm up the audience. Yes. And we're kind of we kind of ended there in that little bit with 1956 and Bernstein, but throughout the 18th century with Mozart, for instance, a lot of his overtures have nothing to do with the opera. He wrote The Marriage of Figaro basically in a few hours the night before. It seemed like for him, the overture was, okay, people are going to hear this. They're going to be talking anyway. Who cares? Um, I'm going to spend as little time on this as I need to and work on the opera for the most part. And even Rossini, who wrote so many operas, he, I think he wrote more overtures than he had operas, but he recycled them in all kinds of ways, didn't he? He was so extraordinarily inventive. There is that famous story of he's sitting in bed writing something, and he accidentally drops the music, and he says, oh, I'm too lazy to pick it up, so he starts writing another piece. I can believe that. Anyway, he Rossini has a formula for his overtures, so I guess that's why they're basically interchangeable. It's called the Rossini Rocket, 
And so it's a way of building excitement. If you think of operas at the time, they weren't attended by very fancy, sophisticated people. They were kind of rowdy entertainments with people throwing tomatoes if they didn't like the singer. So you didn't want anything too delicate. You wanted to say, okay, guys, we're going to have a good time. So the music gets louder and louder and faster and faster. And finally, you know, everybody's quiet and they're like, okay, bring them on, bring them on. That's kind of what Rossini overtures are about. For Barbara of Seville, for instance, he lost the original. Maybe he dropped it on the ground and said, who cares? I'll write another one. But he actually didn't totally write a new one. He just took two other ones and mashed them together and then even recycled those for other operas. Exactly. You know, different different towns, they didn't have recordings. Exactly. So who knew? Yes. <laughs> oh, I've heard this one before. <laughs> Perfect. And so we've heard some great popular examples from... You know, uh, Bizet, Wagner, and Bernstein. Mozart is writing them very fast without almost care. Rossini is mashing them up together, recycling them. In the early 1800s, really with Beethoven's time, these opera overtures start to be performed on their own, separate from the opera, in concerts. And it is, it's like bite-sized music. Now we have these public concerts. People are probably unfamiliar with the whole opera in its entirety, played by an orchestra with a cast. Maybe they've heard some little reductions that they play on their piano at home, but this is also their opportunity to hear the full orchestra play some of these themes. And that leads us into the concert overture, and we'll get into that in just a second right after this. Classical WETA celebrates Beethoven 250. From now until Beethoven's 250th birthday on December 16th, we'll present all of his major works. Each week, we'll focus heavily on one symphony, showcasing a variety of performances and sharing tips on what to listen for in each movement. We'll also broadcast all of the concertos, all of the piano sonatas, and all of the string quartets, violin sonatas, cello sonatas, and piano trios. Visit classicalweta.org for each week's schedule. That's Beethoven 250 on Classical WETA. Classical for Washington. So now we get to this time of concert overtures. These are overtures that aren't tied to an opera. They're not tied to a ballet or something else. They're standalone works just meant for the concert hall stage. And this kind of started in Beethoven's time in the early 1800s. And later on, it would lead to what we call a symphonic poem. But going back to the beginning part of this with uh, Mendelssohn, this fantastic overture, uh, the Hebrides or Fingal's Cave, right? It is, well, we can just listen to the opening of this. And if you've never heard it before, think about what is happening in the music. What is, if you just use your imagination, what is coming to mind? Mendelssohn was a fantastic watercolorist, both artistically on paper and musically. If you think of many of his creations, 
he has a special gift of depicting water and waves. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Exactly. You hear it's kind of like you're creeping up on something. You're in the water. It's kind of maybe there's some fog. And you kind of get to this point where you see over the horizon, the fog clears, and you see this thing before you. And the way he uses the lower strings to depict waves and fast-moving water is just, it's beautiful. And this is about this Fingal's Cave in Scotland, which I think is foggy, right? There's fog. There's a lot of fog in Scotland. So I hear this opening and this clearing, and he's depicting this um, journey, which actually I heard that he really did not enjoy this journey. He got sick. This boat was awful and rocky. It was kind of a place where it was very adventurous if you're going to visit. And now Mendelssohn is not, he's not going to the extent of describing this every little detail. You can make up your own story to go along with this. So it's not quite a symphonic poem. And if you haven't heard our symphonic poem episode, you definitely should. It'll make this uh, more clear. But he's given this overall feeling and he is depicting, as you just said, just beautifully this water maybe hitting the boat or rushing past you. Well, you can Google Fingal's Cave, the actual uh, tourist place that everybody visited in the 19th century, and it's this huge cavern that has been sort of ground out. That the, It almost looks like a huge organ with the pipes and everything. It's just gorgeous. And so many, it was very popular in Mendelssohn's time, when he was taking the grand tour and visiting places like this. And Turner, the artist, also has painted it. And when you hear this and you you kind of see the cave and you see the Turner painting in your imagination, apparently he wrote to his sister, Fanny, that when he went into the cave in the boat, these measures of music came into his head and he jotted them down. And those are inspirations for things like concert overtures, the landscape. Think of Mendelssohn, how many concert overtures he had. I mean, he started when he was 17 with one of the greatest of all time, the uh, Midsummer Night's Overture, where he's picturing a donkey brain, the Shakespearean uh, story. And he's got the story of the legend of the fair Melusina, who's a mermaid. Again, he's using his watercolorist painting. So he really is bringing these concert overtures to to the stage. Remember, he was the conductor of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra. So he needed overtures to start his concerts. And he was one of the people that started playing these opera overtures in concerts, starting with people like, um, like Beethoven. That's right. And he was the first one to give the performance of the Tannhäuser Overture by Wagner as a concert overture. We have inspiration from landscapes, from literature. Also, there's, of course, a lot of music in the military, and that is associated with with battles and victories. Tchaikovsky, one of the most popular concert overtures that people hear all the time, his 1812 Overture. It is a favorite at every 4th of July, at all kinds of different things. And he wrote this in 1880 with a Russian victory against um, Napoleon. And I love the way this starts, Nicole, because you think victory and all of this stuff, you would expect it to start kind of like how it ends, very bombastic, but it has this beautiful, serene opening. 
There's a couple of things that come to mind when you hear something like that. Well, the story is really interesting, and Tchaikovsky's great at telling stories. I mean, he's a ballet and opera composer. So the story here is that the Russian people, the people in Moscow, are praying for deliverance from the invading army of Napoleon. It brings me back to that Pilgrim's Chorus that we heard in in, uh, in Wagner, where it does, it sounds serene, it sounds kind of holy in a way, something special is happening. He's commemorating a very dramatic time in Russian history in, in, uh, during Napoleon. In 1812, Napoleon and his Grande Armée were coming to invade Russia, and there was the Battle of Borodino just outside of Moscow, and the French won that, and you hear the battle music but when they invaded Moscow itself, they, the French had a shock because part of the city had been burned and there were no food or stores to be found. So they had to escape to Poland in the freezing winter, and the army was literally decimated. So we start off with the Russian people praying. Then we hear... The, the battle with the Marseillaise, the French national anthem, and a Russian folk song sort of uh, in, in combat. Then we hear that the French are winning. The Marseillaise is, is, has the upper hand. Then we hear five cannon shots. Then we hear the French retreating out of Moscow, freezing to death. Him comes back because their prayers have been answered. Then we have the grand finale with 11 cannons and the Russian national anthem because God save the Tsar, uh, the French and Napoleon have been routed. And this is the part where we usually hear those cannons and fireworks, not just in the music and recordings, but in real life when you hear this, there's oftentimes... When it's outside, there's artillery in the distance going off, and it's kind of like a surround sound experience. Tchaikovsky said that he didn't like writing this piece because it was too loud, but he wrote it so well that you have to imagine that he really did somewhere deep inside enjoy the, the process. That's what I thought was funny. In that same letter you're uh, mentioning where he said, oh, it's kind of loud and noisy, he was telling his um, patroness, I wrote it without any warm feelings of love, and so it's probably of no artistic worth. But when you hear that hymn and you hear the Russian folk song, there is love there. The other funny thing about this is the Marseillaise was not the French national anthem at the time because Napoleon had banned it. These concert overtures are so descriptive and sometimes like that, sometimes more atmospheric like Mendelssohn. Another one that is very, very popular, especially among people like me, brass players, is Shostakovich's Festive Overture, which he wrote as an anniversary for the October Revolution. And he wrote this one really fast, didn't he, Nicole? In like not even three days. The Bolshoi opera, he was a consultant, and the manager came and said, oh my goodness, we have this big anniversary coming up and I don't have any music. And so apparently uh, Shostakovich sat down at the table and started to joke and laugh and chuckle. And meanwhile, he was writing down notes furiously. And in three days, he had this 
fantastic festive overture. And for me, what is so kind of impressive is that he wrote this without hearing. Of course, he can hear the music in his head, but I think there's a difference between hearing it in your head and then hearing it on stage for the first time. And he wrote this in three days, and it's such a grand, rich texture. I can only imagine the feeling of sitting down and hearing in concert for the first time this music. And Shostakovich takes this glorious kind of fanfare opening and transitions it to something so fast. This one is a lot of fun to listen to. It is so much fun to play as well. It must be extremely difficult to go that fast. I can only imagine being one of the first musicians to play this and just the shock of how fast this piece can be. But there's also some operatic inspiration here too, isn't there? Well, Glinka, Mikhail Glinka, was known as the father of Russian music. So how fitting that Shostakovich would pay homage to him by by being inspired by Glinka's overture to Ruslan and Ludmilla. It has the same kind of quality and style as that overture. It's kind of like, well, I'm not hearing the exact themes or or some kind of just very distinct similarity, but it's like you're listening to it and it's like, this sounds like something. You know that it's one is inspired by the other. It's not like you're cheating on your homework or something. It's like Shostakovich is laughing and writing these notes down and saying, aha, yeah, why not, uh, why not use that? That's a great idea. <laughs> these are great concert overtures. There are so many. We're going to have um, a list of more on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. But um, the big ones we hear all the time, you know, Tchaikovsky, Mendelssohn, Shostakovich. As we've heard, a huge range in diversity of of music because an overture isn't defined by the instruments or as it was back in the day by a simple rhythm but it is defined by where it kind of appears on a program even when you go to the concert hall 99.9 percent of the time you're going to hear a concert overture first on the program not you're not going to play a beethoven nine and then play uh, mendelssohn's hebrides would you no, that would be kind of backwards. <laughs> no, I'd probably leave after Beethoven 9, to be honest. <laughs> now, talking about different sounds in music, there is an overture, Nicole. I'm wondering if you know this. It's by Malcolm Arnold, and it includes a symphony orchestra and a soloist. Not one or two or three. I think there's four. There's four soloists playing Hoover vacuums. Have you ever heard of this? Never. Hoover vacuums. There's even rifles that make an appearance, often played by um, a percussionist with a starter pistol. But four Hoover vacuums take place, uh, especially at the opening. I think Malcolm Arnold was trying to 
make a parody or a joke out of the extravagance, maybe, of these overtures. And when you hear it today, there's still people who have vacuums on the stage. But I think people often complain because back in the 50s when he wrote this, vacuums were so loud, apparently. They were super loud, and they were they had to all be tuned to E-flat or something. But it's that's pretty different, isn't it? How can you tune a vacuum cleaner <laughs> to E-flat? And wouldn't you be breaking union rules by cleaning the stage? Well, that is a good point. I think they, I think that um, they let it slide for cleaning the stage. And I think you just have to buy the vacuum and see what sound it makes and uh, go from there. But that's a lot of fun. I will have video of a performance of that on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. I think that covers a lot of ground here. Opera, ballet concert and uh, the vacuum. How about movies? Movies. Overtures have not just gone away. They exist with us in concerts and ballet and opera, but also in movies when you see perhaps... You already know, a sense of adventure. I mean, with all of the John Williams soundtracks, you have that very impressive opening that acts like an overture. And also think of TV shows, a sitcom, especially from like the 90s. They're playing a cheesy theme song, overlooking the city, introducing all of the characters um, and maybe fitting the style of music with those characters much in the same way that perhaps Georges Bizet did with Carmen. Or think of the the big movies, uh, the pageants like uh, Ben-Hur, where you had the overture being played and the curtain would open. Or, you know, you were just uh, talking about Star Wars there. John Williams actually, he had the main title from the movie and then the end titles from the end of the movie, and he combined them into an overture for the recording of the score. So he actually wrote or crafted an overture. And when you think of John Williams, he owes a debt to Wagner, certainly, and to Gustav Holtz, the stormtroopers, very much inspired by Mars from the planets. Um, and so that whole tradition stays alive in music like this. And that is the thing. Overtures have not gone away. They are they're everywhere, although a little shorter now. But they're everywhere, and they owe their debt to composers, as you said, like Wagner, and then going back further with perhaps the original overture, to Orfeo by Monteverdi. 400 years we're talking about here. Well, Nicole, do you have anything more for us on the overture? This was really kind of a fascinating journey through, as you said, 400 years of something we take for granted. You know, as I told you, I played six different overtures from different styles, different eras, including the 32nd one that had just been published uh, for kids. But they... Politically, uh, historically, artistically, there are so many different elements that go into the the development of this form or this uh, – it's not really a form. It's a – It's like an idea. It's an idea. And, and you never lose that, that feeling of excitement in the piece or that feeling of someone or something big is about to happen, that sense of anticipation. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. You've definitely enlightened me. And we'll have a lot more on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. This is fun. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on overtures, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any ideas or comments, send them to me at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.